If you'll take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Matthew, this morning we're going to complete our study of what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. A better description of it would be the Disciples' Prayer. It was the way Jesus taught His disciples to pray. And let us be reminded this morning that when the New Testament uses the word disciple, it's not always synonymous with the word apostle. Ordinarily, when we think of the word disciple, we think of one of the twelve inner circle of Christ. However, upon closer examination, what we discover is that the word of choice by the Holy Spirit through the writers of the New Testament to describe one who is a child of God is that person is a disciple of Christ, which means a lifelong learner and follower after the person of Jesus Christ. So this is the disciples' prayer. Let's read from Matthew chapter 6, this prayer that is so familiar to the vast majority of us. Jesus says in verse 9 of Matthew 6, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. On June the 5th, 1944, President Franklin Roosevelt conducted his 29th of the 30 fireside chats. He sat in the comfort of his own office, and he spoke personally to all Americans who would hear He had quite an audience. The next day, however, he spoke, and it was announced the previous day that he would speak to the whole nation, not from his chair in his office where there was a fire burning, but from the Oval Office to all the people in the U.S. No television to speak of at that time. It was through the medium of radio. And when it came time for him to speak, the previous day... When he talked in that 29th fireside chat of the fall of Rome, the fall of Mussolini, and one step closer to victory for the Allied forces in World War II, he knew what was happening, but he could not say anything about it on June the 5th. He knew that the American forces, along with the other Allies, were making way for the beach of Normandy and there to invade France and put a nail in the coffin of the Hitler regime, the Third Reich. But on that day, June the 6th, 1944, he did not give a speech. It was the first time in all of his service as President of the United States. And I'm sure you know that he served longer than any president. He was in his fourth term and died the year after he gave this prayer. It was not a prayer that was simply from the head. You can tell when you hear some of the wording of it I'm going to share with you. It was from his heart. It is said that tears flowed freely in the homes of Americans all over the United States, regardless of their political persuasion, because all the people had skin in the game as far as that war was concerned. 
Listen to some of the things which President Roosevelt prayed. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation this day, have set up a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to see set free a suffering humanity. To give, we ask these soldiers, strength for their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They fight, O Father, not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all your people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for the return to the haven of their home. And for us at home, O Father, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of these brave men overseas, whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them, help us, Almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in you in this hour of great sacrifice. As we rise to each new day, and again when each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips, invoking your help to our efforts. And he concluded the prayer by saying something from the Lord's Prayer. God Almighty, your will be done. The question is, how is the will of God done? We looked last week at how the first part of what we call the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, concentrates on the Father. It's about the Father honoring His name. Also, bringing His kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, that He would be ruler in actuality over all of mankind as He is in heaven. And then also that His will might be done. How do we know what the will of God is? Jesus does not leave us in the dark when it comes to answering that question. In fact, the second part of the disciples' prayer gives us insight into what the will of God is. And if we are people who join God through Jesus Christ to advance the kingdom of God, to bring it to bear on earth as it is in heaven, we will find great help and direction in what He has to say. In a word, God's will is dependence upon Him. The Bible talks in the book of Psalm 37, how we are to trust the Lord and do good, to dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. We're to be men and women whose desire is for God. And knowing that if He, do, he does see this in us, He will grant the desires of our heart. We'll delight in Him. And the Bible goes on to say in Psalm 37, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. The idea of trust is a word that comes frequently in the Old Testament. Every time this word was used, it painted a picture for those who heard it. It doesn't convey to us in English what it would have conveyed to those who heard it. It is a picture of someone who has been conquered and has submitted himself or herself to the conqueror. We who know Jesus Christ have yielded ourselves to His Lordship 
And we are people who have God as our Father. And consequently, we want His kingdom to come on earth as it has come in our own hearts. Because in order to know God through Jesus Christ, we must set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. And then we will be ready to do the will of God as an expression of being men and women who are doing the will of God in dependence upon Him. This dependence is referred to in three categories, and this is not comprehensive, but it covers most of the bases. The first of these last three petitions is, Give us this day our daily bread. This speaks of our dependence on God as His followers for the supply of life, the things on the physical level which are necessary for us to do the work of advancing the kingdom of God. Daily bread. Archaeologists have discovered evidence that this word, it was one word in the original language, this word was used when people were preparing a shopping list for the next day. At the end of the day, the head of the house, one who ran the household, would often write a shopping list. And the word daily that's used there in this archaeological discovery is the word which Jesus uses here as well. It's give us enough for today or tomorrow. It's debated as to whether this prayer would have been prayed in the morning or in the evening. Now, quite frankly, we need to pray it more than once a day, don't we? It's never something that we should give in to or give up to. We are to be people who pray this prayer enough for today, Lord. It's worth noting that Jesus says, Give us this day our daily bread, not our daily cake. Be grateful for cake, but don't pray for it. I've had way too much cake in the last three months. I was convicted about that when I read this and studied it in preparation for what I'm sharing with you today. Bread costs money, doesn't it? We even use the word bread as a synonym sometimes for money. Bread costs money. Money requires work, which requires jobs. Good government is preferred. A good government that produces a means whereby we get food near to us which we can purchase with the work work that we've done and the means that have come into our possession as a result. We need good roads. I'll never forget my first trip to Kenya. I was with several men. I don't know if any of those men are in the room. There were some here last night who were with me when we took this trip to minister to a village in the north of Kenya. And we landed in Nairobi. We got in our transportation. And I have never had as rough a ride in my life. Add to that that it seemed like every oncoming vehicle wanted to play chicken with ours. But, frankly, the road looked like it was a road that would be discovered in a war-torn world or country. I asked about why such poor upkeep. And I was told by my host... It's because those who are in government have taken money which was designed for infrastructure strengthening and they spent it on themselves. 
That's a story which could be told over and over again. As I was thinking about this idea, all of a sudden the name Papa Doc and Baby Doc came to my memory. And I must confess, I didn't know a whole lot about them. I knew that they were dictators in Haiti, which was at that time, and as far as I know, still remains the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. And they were dictators, bloodthirsty tyrants, if you will. Baby Doc, succeeding his father after his father had died, was married. And in the midst of all the poverty in that nation, there were $2 million spent on a wedding. Now, that's amazing, isn't it? $2 million on a wedding. And this was a leader, in effect, the father of the country, spending so lavishly upon himself and his bride and their family and their friends while people went hungry in the nation. We need to pray not only that God will provide our daily bread, but that God will provide the kind of leaders in our nations who have principles rooted in what Jesus teaches us. And let me just branch off a little bit at this point. And note that nations in the world which have a different basis for their outlook, they are not in any way, form or fashion, a people whose history is rooted in the Judeo-Christian tradition represented in the Word of God, the Bible, and also in the teachings of Jesus as a result, obviously. What we discover, for instance, if we go to India today, some of you have been to India, and to go there is a very sobering experience. Culture shock, big time, for a Westerner who's never been into such a setting. And we see the poverty that's rooted in the religion, actually, of Hinduism. Because in Hinduism, all Hindus are in the process, in the pipeline, if you will, of returning to moksha which would be returning to the state of being divine. Every human being, every living being, actually, is an offspring of the divine, sparked off. And people are migrating through a series of reincarnations to get back to God. So, you have castes, different levels of people, and people are defined in a way we can't even imagine by their caste their birth, their accident of birth to be born. It would not be an accident from a Hinduistic point of view. It was their karma. And it would be wrong to help someone out of that role, that karma, because in so doing, I might, if I were to do so, prevent them from progressing as rapidly as they otherwise would to be reunited with the Godhead. And therefore, there's this insidious kind of system do you know, according to geo-sociologists, that there is not a nation in this world that does not have enough arable that would be cultivatable land to feed all the inhabitants in that land and many more? Are you aware of that? Only 15% of the cultivatable land in the world is in use. And meanwhile, in India, hundreds of thousands, millions of people are malnourished 
and go to bed hungry at night. And it's directly related to this religion, which worships, among other things, the cow. There is said to be 20% of all the grain and food that could be turned into bread in India consumed by cows. Why? Because they're sacred. And to do something to them would be wrong. Also, 15% of that same nation's store of grain is consumed by mice and rats because they too are in transmigration and they're dealt with as even gods in many cases. What happens when we as followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ, what happens when we give proper attention to the introductory set of petitions in this great prayer, the disciples' prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. What that means is, may your name be central. May your name be the focus. And in effect, we know what the name means from a biblical point of view. It's your person. May you be the central person in my life. And the result of that is that the kingdom of God will advance. Last week we saw, how does the kingdom of God advance? It comes when we who know Jesus Christ pray for those people, but we do more than simply pray. We go when God tells us to go. And as we go, we embody a life that is indeed in sync with the will of God. And we are different in the way in which we treat people, as we're going to see in just a moment, who find themselves in dire straits like so many people in India and other places in the world, Haiti, all these places. And we do the will of God. So, when we think about this whole matter, of being people who are spreading the kingdom of God. We spread it by sharing the gospel, which is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. And also, we think about how that message, which is so simple but incredibly powerful, has the possibility of changing people fundamentally. Identity comes not from any accident of birth. It comes not from one's position. It comes not from one's education. Good self-image can only be found in knowing God. And knowing God is not something that is reserved for a select group of people at the top of the food chain, as it were, in some man-made religion. It's to be found in Jesus Christ, who is Himself the way, the truth, and the life. And we who know Jesus have this incredible privilege, such a humbling thought, that He would choose us among all those in the world to know Him personally, and in turn, to be on mission for Him, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. When the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, the impact is not only noticeable, but it is incredibly powerful. People who come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and live in a dependent relationship upon Him for the supplying of their needs in this life, but also who trust Him to use them to help others come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have the capacity to change a culture. 
Allow me an illustration. In the late 18th century, in 1789, Marie Antoinette was approached. She was the wife of Louis XVI, the emperor, the king of France. She was approached by those who were concerned about the poverty among her subjects. And she was told that the people are begging for bread. And she said rather nonchalantly, feed them cake. Let them eat cake. It was not long before she lost her head. We better be sensitive about these things for sure. Here was a monarch who had the power to share, but she didn't. What was happening simultaneous to that scenario in France was happening in maybe not quite the degree, but to a large degree as it was in France. And in Great Britain, there was great poverty. But there came something, what was known as a great awakening. The Spirit of God began to move. People came to know Jesus Christ as the Savior of their lives and the Lord of their lives. And the result was that the social problems began to remedy themselves. That's a bad way of saying it. They were remedied by people who made a difference because of their devotion to Jesus Christ and taking their cues from Him as to what constitutes the will of God. It happens. There was a great spiritual awakening in the first decade of the 20th century. It was the last great awakening in the history of the world. We're long overdue for another one, over a century. It happened in the nation of Wales. Wales was and remains a coal mining nation. And when this great renewal occurred, people had been praying for spiritual renewal in the churches in Wales. So much so that as they gathered to worship the Lord in their own houses of worship, and God was renewing them, doing away with the old wineskins, pouring new wine into new wineskins, as it were. And they were rejoicing and praising God. They were seeing the hand of God work. People would just be walking down the road in proximity to these places of worship, and they would fall on their knees before God without hearing the gospel at all and cry out to God, and their lives were changed. Among those were many coal miners. The coal miners would employ the strength of donkeys and take them down into the bowels of those coal mines, carrying a, a, a whatever you call it, a little, what do you call that thing? Thank you very much. I was trying to say crate. Thanks for the help. I'll talk to you later and give you a little tip on that. One. <laughs> Appreciate that. The cart. Thanks so much. Who was that? All right. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Y'all were a, a duet on that. But anyway, they, what happened was these donkeys quit responding to the coal miners who had been just vile in their language and brutal in the tone of their voices when they were encouraging their beasts of burden to take that coal out of the minds. Why? Because they had been chained, changed. Policemen were out of work. 
So what they ended up doing, some of them at least, they formed what we would call policemen quartets. Kind of like barbershop quartets. The brothels were closed. The saloons were empty because people sought the Lord and knew the Lord. Social change that lasts and that counts is directly related to the movement of God in changing the hearts of people just like us as we trust in the Lord. Christ's prayer by implication was a prayer for things necessary and just for production, distribution, and purchase of bread. Christ's prayer is for social justice. And we as evangelicals don't talk too much about social justice. And we should be reminded what God says about Himself in Jeremiah 9, verse 24. He says, Let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I love mercy and justice and righteousness. These are traits of the living God. These are traits which were embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was addressed by a blind man by the name of Bartimaeus as Jesus was passing through his city of Jericho. And he cried out after having been shushed by people, Don't bother him, don't bother him. And this blind beggar cried out to Jesus. And Jesus says, What do you want? He says, David, son of mercy. This is the description of Jesus Himself, the anticipated Messiah, would be a merchant of mercy and justice. And we, if we are like Jesus, we will also be like that. Some people, mistakenly I might say, and I'll tell you why, associate the Christian church with socialism. Well, we who know Jesus are going to make an incredible difference in the society. The way to eradicate what problems are created in the social structure is to help people who are struggling. Yes, I hope I've made that clear. Share with them. And Jesus begins with praying for food before He prays for forgiveness. That's interesting, isn't it? Because He understands when people are have a gnawing in their belly and don't have enough to eat. We don't know much about that in the U.S., by the way. But they are less apt to be able to hear the gospel. When people come in the love of Christ, in the name of Christ, and they care for people, and they meet their basic fundamental needs of life, those people who receive those things are more ready to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and respond. In 1825, Robert Owens established a colony or a town, if you will, New Harmony, Indiana, on the Wabash River. He was accompanied by some 600 people who wanted to enter into this experiment, which was, in, a fa- in fact, an experience to develop a utopian society, a perfect society. In the two years which followed, they adopted seven different constitutions. One after the other was abolished for something better. They couldn't agree. And the whole experiment went kaput. 
In the new Declaration of Independence, which Owen himself wrote, he was a Britisher, he wrote that there were three things that had to be done away with for utopia on earth. One was, first of all, religion. The second was conventional marriage, traditional marriage. The third was the right to own personal property. Does the Bible speak to this at all? Well, in the New Testament church, we know in the second chapter of Acts, the fourth chapter of Acts, we know that the result of Christ coming to live in people by the Holy Spirit of God was that they were incredibly generous. People who had been rather selfish, and maybe not from the world standard, some of them probably had had a certain charitable streak, but something happened. And those people who had come from all over the Mediterranean world to celebrate Passover and stayed over after the death and resurrection of Christ, stayed over for the Pentecost experience some several weeks after that, and the Spirit of God fell upon them, and 3,000 people were changed by the power of the Spirit and came to know Jesus. Some of them needed help financially. So those who were landholders sold what they had, brought the proceeds to the feet of the apostles, and so there was no one in need in that group. Does that mean that that is to be the standard for every situation? When there's need, I need to remember, and so do you, that what I hold really doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the Lord who saved me. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are to glorify our God who has saved us. He has given us stewardship. He gives us, the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, He gives us the power to make wealth. And one thing we are to do with that wealth as believers, this would not apply to unbelievers, but it would definitely apply to us because in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul, giving a description of what is characteristic of people who come to Christ, they put off certain behaviors that were characteristic of them before receiving Jesus, and in the place of those behaviors, they put on new behavior. When it came to talking about thieves, he said, let you who have had a history of surviving by thievery, put off thievery, get a job. And work with your own hands. And then, listen to what the Scripture says, then share something with others in need. If we look at everything we get from our work as being ours as believers, if we have that perspective, we are sorely mistaken. And God puts money, means in our hands, not just to meet our needs, but to share with others who are in need. In Acts chapter 5, going back to the book of Acts, to try to explore a little more fully this idea, is socialism synonymous with Christianity, as it's described in the book of Acts? Well, if we turn there, what we would read is the story about a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. They watched what happened when Barnabas brought and put his money and how the church really loved him and they put their heads together and they said, hey, 
Why don't we sell some of our property? We have extra property. Let's sell a little bit of it. And let's take it to the apostles. And we're not going to tell them that we're going to hold some of it back. But it'll make a great impression on the church. And we'll get the kind of plaudits that they received. I mean, that Barnabas received. So they did exactly that. When Ananias came unaccompanied into the presence of the apostles... The Holy Spirit spoke to the Apostle Paul and indicated what was going on. And he confronted Ananias. And he said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? That would have been a startling statement, I'm sure, to Ananias. And he said, you could have sold your property and kept it if you wanted to. He's talking to a believer here. You could have kept it. You didn't have to give it. But you lied to God, actually, he goes on to say, letting us know the Holy Spirit is indeed God on a par with the Father and the Son. And the result is, you're dead, bud. He didn't say that, but he dropped dead right there. That's pretty dramatic. Pretty, be careful what you say about what you give, okay? But then his wife came in a little later, same scenario, same scene, she passed away. God gives us whatever property we have, and it may not be land. There are men and women in this room who do not own a piece of property. You don't have anything. And you may feel cheated by that. Don't. Just keep trusting the Lord. Depend on the Lord. Know that God has promised us who know Him, if we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, all these other things will be added to us. God has said that God will supply all our needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We have the promise that we who know Jesus, who seek the Lord and fear Him, are people who are going to be taken care of. And we'll be given a little extra in most cases so that we can share it with others who are less fortunate than we. This is a petition. This Give us this day our daily bread for contentment. Frequently read in the New Testament, be content with what you have. We want just one more of something. One more of this, one more of that. We stockpile things, we hoard things. That is not what the Lord would have us to do. If we have surplus, the question we need to ask is, first question I think, Lord, how would you want me to use this to advance the gospel, to love my brothers and sisters in Christ who might be in need, even in our own church. How can we serve you by serving others like this, Lord? That's what I believe the Lord would have us to ask in that situation. It's not wrong to have stuff. Let me quick, be quick to say, in the book of First Timothy, the Bible says in the sixth chapter, God gives us everything richly to enjoy. However, the greater joy is not in getting those things to spend on our own lives but to in luxuries, but to share them with other people. Let's look at the second thing and the third thing rather quickly compared to this. The second is the dependence is not simply to be on the Lord for our physical needs, but on Him for mercy. Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The word debts was a word which was used contemporary with Jesus by many of the rabbis to be synonymous with sin. So every time we sin, 
we're building a wall of separation according to this way of thinking among the rabbis. And they're on solid ground, I might add. Why? Because in the book of Isaiah, the Bible talks about how our sin creates a wall between us. Our sin separates us from God. We cannot be properly related. And so the story goes in the rabbinical side that this wall grows and grows and grows. And the way you get rid of that wall is by doing things good to get right with God. Doing acts of charity to get right with God. Being people who are baptized, people who read the Bible, all kinds of things. Well, that's getting the cart before the horse. We are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what the Bible says. It's not by doing good deeds. And going back to Isaiah for just a moment, to the 64th chapter, the Bible says, All our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. They're repulsive to God. We, maybe you, I think I would, consider myself to be shameless. If I came to a person whom I owed an impossible debt and told that person, I need you to forgive my debt, all of it, I wouldn't think about doing that. My pride would keep me from doing that. There may be a big message in that, but in the sense that we think that's unacceptable behavior. But that's exactly what God calls us to do. First of all, we do know that we are poor in spirit. That's the first of the Beatitudes. And that means we're spiritual bankrupt people, spiritually empty. We can't save ourselves. And that results to our mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. They mourn. We mourn over our sin. And we see just how separated our sin has made us from God. And it breaks our hearts. In Nehemiah 8, there's a description of a gathering, a huge gathering in Jerusalem. And the people were listening to the reading of the law of God, the Bible we would call it. And they began to weep because they realized the previous 70 years of exile and the destruction of the temple of God and the city of David was the result of their forefathers and even some of them disobeying the Lord, not obeying the law. And then responding to that, this is what the man of God, Ezra, the great scribe, said to them. Do not grieve, for today is a day of good news. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Where does the joy come from? Knowing that the Lord has wiped the slate clean. Did you notice when we read Psalm 103, as far as the east is the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us, provided we've owned them and admitted them, and humbly come before Him. It says, As a father has compassion on his children, so our God has compassion upon us. He is our Father. And He wipes the slate entirely clean. As far as the east is from the west, as we saw, He removes our transgressions from us. We cannot be on speaking terms with the Father, however, if we're not on speaking terms with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others their debts, our debtors. Forgiveness received and not passed on, or forgiveness requested but denied others, is fake forgiveness. 
Remember what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. Let me stop here just a moment. Are you here this morning and you're keeping a record of wrong against another brother or sister in Christ? Maybe your spouse. Maybe a mother, a father, a child. Maybe a sibling. Maybe me or somebody else. Well, God would indicate not that we just pass it by, but talk to the person about it. They may not even know. And it takes a lot of humility to do that, frankly, to humble ourselves. And if you become aware of someone whom you have offended, then the Scripture is very clear that you are to go to that person, lay your act of worship on the floor before you take it to the altar, go and get right, and then come back and do your worship, God keeps no record of wrongs when we come to know Him. This is hard to believe, but it's true. He forgives all of our sins if we humble ourselves. In Philippians 4.2, Paul writes about two women, Euodia and Syntyche. And he says, plead with them that they might live in harmony with one another. In this beautiful document, all of a sudden, this shows up. They must have... Minds that are in harmony with one another is literally what is said in the text. So this is what God would say to you. If you're at sorts with somebody, out of sorts with somebody in the church, get it right. Because God will not be able to give you forgiveness until you get right with that other person. Please understand that when you receive Christ, you're forgiven everything. But there are situations after you receive Christ that you can be in a bad relationship with someone, refusing to forgive that person, and your fellowship with the Father is interrupted by your refusal to make it right with the other person. Here's the last thing. Dependence on God for deliverance. Look at the last part of verse 13 of this great prayer. Do not let us... Lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What this word deliver means simply is, it's the word which means snatch. It's a word which speaks of almost a violent grabbing of something in order to save it. Have you ever seen that happen before? Have you ever seen somebody, if you didn't know the rest of the story, how someone grabbed a child very quickly, another person, and just sort of yanked them by the arm or something, but... What that was all about is saving the child from something awful. Lead us not into temptation. The word temptation is also equally well, and in this case I think it should have been translated by the New Testament translator, the word test. Lead us not into test. God will not put you in harm's way, but He does put us in situations to test the genuineness of our faith. And we have to have such testing so that we can grow spiritually. This is what the Scripture is very clear about in the book of James, chapter 1, 2 through 4, in other places. Romans 5 also. So, lead us not into temptation. This is a valid prayer. Let's pray that to the Lord. Don't lead us into testing situations, Lord. Did Jesus pray such a prayer, by the way? In the Garden of Gethsemane, how many times did He pray to ask the Father to take away the test that he was about to undergo. Three times. And what did the Father say? No, no, no. 
Was that God the Father being mean to his only begotten Son? No. There was a mission which Jesus was on to glorify God. And we glorify God when we face situations that are difficult and we don't back away from God. We don't blame God. We learn the important lesson of in everything giving, in everything giving thanks to God for the glory of God. Well, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The NIV, I love the translation, deliver us from the evil one, not because it fits my theology, but because that's exactly what is meant there. Deliver us from the evil one. That would be the devil. Here's a simple way to deal and apply this aspect of dependence for deliverance. Here it is. In James, the fourth chapter, the Bible says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. That's the beginning point. Isn't that where Jesus begins in this great prayer? Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. This goes back to our preaching the gospel, sharing Christ throughout the world. In Romans 16, 20, Paul writes to them, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How good and beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news because their feet are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in the sharing of Jesus Christ with people, people's lives are altered irrevocably. This is what God's called us to. Submit to the Lord by honoring His name, making Him central. Submit to the Lord by seeking to live under His rulership and help others to do likewise. Submit to the Lord by doing His will. By depending on the Lord for everything. By depending on the Lord that He would forgive us and deliver us from that which is evil. Let's pray. In fact, let's do something different. I'm going to ask you to stand. And for our closing prayer, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. It will be projected on the screen. Most of you could say it by heart. We have a little different version represented from person to person. So let's pray this prayer and pray this prayer with what we've learned in mind and then we'll be dismissed. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.